MSW Media. It really, again, it's situational. Like, this is really, you know, I, I, if it's four o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sitting in an old man bar. Yes. I, I very much, this, this is actually my favorite for, you know, every, if I'm not every day, but, you know, for recreational, sitting by myself at the bar listening to Tom Waits. Sure. Uh, I'd be drinking this with a rock in it. What I love about the old whiskeys, as I think about, is the guys that made that, they're all gone. Yeah. For the uh, most part. Yeah. The guy that laid that barrel down in 1968. Yeah. I was in Antarctica recently, and we camped out overnight in tents at a scientific base, a small outstation base where a, a scientists go to collect field data. And we were at the foot of this incredible glacier with blue ice. And we had some very good whiskey there. And we all poured some whiskey, and somebody went outside, came back in with a bowl of ice and put it in her drinks and said, the ice I just put in your drinks is like thousands of years older than even the idea of whiskey. Amazing. Before it was even thought of. Yeah. Hundreds if not thousands of years ago was when this this water was frozen and has remained exactly like that since. Yeah. And that's the whiskey you're going to remember for the rest of your life. Yeah. yourself a glass, sit for a spill, it's time to have some fun, let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking, but this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Hello, friend. How are you? Thanks for joining me. It's good to have you along for today's ride. Coming up on the show, I'm going to be speaking with Raj Peter Bakta. He's the founder of the iconic rye whiskey brand Whistlepig. His latest venture is called Bakta 50, which they're billing as the rarest spirit known to humankind. How's that for hyperbole? Uh, Raj is also a former contestant on The Apprentice. Many of you will be happy to know, though, that we totally avoid talking about that show's host. We've all had enough, haven't we? I invite you to follow me on the social media. We have a new Instagram account for the podcast. Podcast has its own account now. It's WWD underscore podcast. That's WWD underscore podcast. Please go follow that account. And then I have my own personal account at the Inbiber. You can also go there. I'm posting stuff, you know, from my own life. Give you a little glimpse of what's happening with me. The real me. Oh, I miss bars. As you've probably gathered, if you listen to this show or you read any of my work, I've been to a lot of bars. It's a byproduct of being a member in good standing of the international boozing press. Now, over the years, certain similarities have emerged between these bars. Many, many years ago, upon first noticing this, I immediately realized further research was in order. So a couple of years went by, and I remembered what the similarities were again. And the process started all over again. It's like the circle of life, only drunker. And now, after two full decades of remembering to try to figure it out, I've done it. I have made a list of what I call archetypes. That's right. 
It's like archetypes, but I put a B on the front because I'm fucking clever, okay? Archetypes. And I also did it because I wanted to give the last 20 years of my drinking some modicum of meaning. So I'm going to tell you about them. Now, you might be wondering, but Dan, why tell us about the types of bars now when the pandemic prevents us from going to bars? Well, friends, as the great Willy Wonka once said, we are the dreamers of dreams. And I don't know about you, but I don't plan to spend this holiday season lamenting what isn't. I'm going to dream about what once was and what will be again. Okay? Okay. Now, the first bar on my list is the Neighborhood Dive. The Neighborhood Dive is a no-frills joint owned and operated by a native son with a name like uh, Sully or Mac. These bars are open every day, and they cater to a tightly knit, fiercely loyal clientele that revel in the camaraderie, cheap drinks, and proximity to home. That's very important. Local bars always got to be close to your house. Now, beyond being a temple of worship for the local sports franchises, a neighborhood dive doesn't purport to have a concept or a theme. There's no food to speak of, save for some pretzels on the bar. And if you dislike E. coli, I'd stay away from those. There's a pegboard filled with individual packages of chips and perhaps a jar filled with pickled eggs. With the possible exception of replacing a worn-out dartboard or updating the jukebox selections every decade or so, neighborhood dives don't keep up with the times. They're enduring reminders that the more things change, the more working-class drinkers remain the same. Places of poetry, and I love them dearly. Then there's the pub. Pubs differ from dive bars in that they're usually larger, cleaner, and more tourist-tolerant. And when I say tourist, I mean anyone who didn't grow up within a three-block radius of the place. They tend to be cozy spots where a lot of drinking still gets done, but you're far less likely to see someone projectile vomit on his wife, get beat up by a teamster, collapse and die of liver failure, or put their shit digits in the pretzel barrel. Most pubs offer good beer, reasonably priced drinks, and greasy cheeseburgers that taste awesome after midnight. And the cool people-to-total jag-off ratio in these places tends to hover around 10 to 1. Disregard this ratio, however, if said pub has a karaoke night. In this case, the ratio reverses. See? Reverses. Depending on the frequency of said karaoke night, you may actually want to consider downgrading this place's rating from a pub to a plastic bar. What's a plastic bar? Funny you should ask. My friends and I sometimes call these Stephen Miller bars which is to say the plastic bar was born without a soul. You might know them as fern bars or yuppie bars or that place with the frozen daiquiri machine. But while they may not have authenticity on their side, they do have booze, so let's not get too hung up on the technicalities, all right? Treat your plastic bar the same way you'd treat a museum exhibit. Speak softly, don't touch anything, and leave as quickly as possible. You may have sex with things you find inside the plastic bar, but only once. Trust me on this. Next up, we have the sports bar. In addition to being the barcotype responsible for the second highest number of divorces, sports bars are also a factor in a large number of DUI arrests, full-scale brawls, illegal gambling rings, and chicken wing choking incidents. Chicken wing choking incidents. Happens. As a result, men can't seem to get enough of them. This is because men, while occasionally sweet and erudite, are complete assholes most of the time. 
With the exception of a few really messed up sex clubs, there's nowhere a man can tap into his inner asshole more completely than a place where the menus are shaped like goalie masks and feature meals named after ballparks and Heisman Trophy winners. Now, in fairness, I did once have a transcendent dining experience at a Hooters in South Florida, though I have a suspicion that owes something to the fact that the Eagles were winning against the Giants in a divisional round playoff game, and that Sandra, our waitress, insisted on sitting in my lap every time she came to check that we had enough beer. It's possible those things made me elevate my pasta testaverde with marinara sauce and peppers to legendary status. But mamma mia, what a meal. What else we got? Oh, that's right. We have the full of itself bar. Now, these are places that purport to bring a science and a purism and a sense of history to the creation of cocktails. In these places, you'll often hear bartending referred to as mixology. You're also very likely to be charged upwards of $20 per drink, which is great when they're great. But their trendlet has attracted posers, and when these places are bad, they are deeply uh, hideous. The last thing you want when you're trying to enjoy a relaxing drink is either smug superiority from the bartender, or remember the waitstaff insisting on telling you about the fair trade origin of the drink's agave syrup. Shut the hell up and make with the alcohol fetching. Turn off the fucking lounge music, too. Oh, and a comfortable chair would be nice. Now, I should reiterate that many of these places are wonderful and employ some of my favorite people in the world. That doesn't mean I can't still shit on them, though. And finally, the hotel bar. Now, these come in many shapes and sizes, but they have one defining characteristic that unites them. Hotel bars are always located within stumbling distance of a bedroom. And that means possibilities. Not all of them good ones. So there you have it, my friends. We're going to take a very quick break to hear from our sponsor, MeUndies, and then my chat with Raj Peter Bakta. Hey, let me ask you something. What kind of underwear are you wearing right now? Does it feel like you're sitting in a heaven cloud? No? Well, maybe it's time for a change. Imagine how much more badass you'd feel right now if your undies were covered in pandas or sushi rolls. Mine are, because I wear me undies, which offers classic colors to ridiculous prints, all so you can fully express yourself in your own unique way. Speaking of which, MeUndies Gives is an initiative that supports those who have systemic barriers to their self-expression. By shopping MeUndies, you support causes such as LGBTQ plus communities, mental health and well-being, and women's rights. And MeUndies has a great offer for my listeners. Any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. Go to MeUndies.com slash drinking. That's MeUndies.com slash drinking. MeUndies believes you and your butt deserve comfort inside and out. And me, well, I just like saying the word butt. Joining me now is a gentleman who about a decade and a half ago founded a whiskey that is now one is a legendary rye whiskey already. In that short period of time, one of America's iconic brands and so I guess he had a Groucho Marx moment and thought any club that'll have me, I don't want to be part of. So he sold that brand and decided to do something a little bit different with his next thing. It's his newest thing. And he has brought to the world the rarest spirit known to mankind. And we're going to be talking about his first project and then this project and all sorts of things today. Please welcome to the show, Raj Bakhtar. Raj, how are you, man? I'm great, Dan. I'm great, Dan. It's good Thank to see you. Man. 
Thank you for that great introduction to be on the uh, to be on the podcast. One of the rarest individuals uh, known to mankind. That's me talking about the rarest spirits known to mankind. <laughs> Your rare podcast. So I should I should tell everybody the spirit. The first spirit that we're talking about is Whistle Pig. Whistle Pig. Anybody that drinks whiskey. I, in any serious way, is aware of Whistle Pig. And you started that brand back in 2006, right? Actually, it was a little bit later than that, believe it or not. It was, uh, I, I really marked the beginning of Whistle Pig as December of 2009 when I was with uh, Dave Pickerel, my partner. Um, and so it was, you know, that's, that's 10, 11 years ago now, but very close. So it's even shorter than, than, uh, uh, Pretty amazing. Now, Dave, the late Dave Pickerel, a good buddy of mine as well, uh, was a legend. It's so weird to say was still, you know, was a legend in the business. He was at Maker's Mark, spent a good deal of time there. What other brand he had? Was Hillhaven? Was that his too? Was, uh, oh, oh my gosh, Hill Rock. Hill Rock. Hill Rock. Sorry. Yeah. Hill Haven is uh, Brett Ratner. Sorry, let's not confuse Dave Pickerel with Brett Ratner. Uh, Hill Rock, I'm drawing a blank now. And well, his final project was Black. I like, I, I like to forget that he was working with anybody but me. So that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Whistle Pig was his. I would argue that that's probably the thing that he was most proud of. I know he was yeah. very he was very excited about Blackened, the project he was doing with Metallica, but sadly he passed just as it yeah. was getting off the ground. Whereas yeah. Whistlepig, he certainly lived to see the fruits of his labor and yeah. to see just how much the, the world fell in love with that brand. So talk a little yeah. bit about how that how that started, and then we'll we'll go to where that led to. Yeah, sure. So, boy, it was back in, uh, I first took a look, Dan, at the spirits business in like 2008. Um, but to frame that correctly, I mean, I really have to got to go back. I lost the race for Congress where we're both from in the 13th Congressional District of Pennsylvania, which was Northeast Philadelphia and Montgomery County. Northeast. I grew up in North. Where, wait, where did you? Do we talk? We talked about this on the phone before. But where did you go to high school? I was. I, I, I was. I, I was. I, I went to high school. And I was born in the Frankfurt section of the city. And Me too. I was born in Frankfurt yeah. as well. Oakland and Sheltonham. That's where. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at uh, like Oxford, uh, Oxford yeah. Avenue, getting close to where you would run into the uh, the elevated train there. Same neighborhood, Oxford Circle, baby. There we go. Oxford Circle. That's yeah. right. And uh, moved out to Bluebell, and then I went to school in Montgomery County. Went to high school there. The and but running for Congress, I you know it was 2006. It was a uh, it was a rough year to be uh, to be Republican uh, in that in overall in the whole country, um, but especially in that district, uh, which was really not a Republican district at all, as you know. Uh, and uh, I got my ass kicked, Dan. And, you know, didn't really know what to do after, you know, sort of uh, fumbled around for probably six, eight months after the rest race went off to India. You know, Steve Irwin had just died, right? At This is 2006. The, and the my, crocodile hunter. The crocodile hunter. Kaiki, you know, and I thought it would be really funny if there was an Indian guy to replace him. Like if I ever catch the tiger by the tail, you know, like a like a good Indian character crocodile hunter. The I'm half Indian, so I can make whatever accents I want in the Indian department. 
Um, and so I go off to India. I go to find the crocodile hunter replacement. I can't with the yoga instructor. I can't find my uh, I can't find my crocodile hunter. Uh, so I come back at that point at what I feel is like a, a string of pretty bad defeats. So before the congressional race, before the congressional race, I was on the Apprentice, right? Where where the still president fired me from, uh, like he did many others. Uh, you know, very publicly. So I lost the race for Congress. Uh, I lost, you know, a TV game show. I didn't win The Apprentice. And then I couldn't find one guy out of a country of 1.4 billion people to be my crocodile hunter. And that landed me on a farm in Vermont, 2007. 2008, I take a look at the spirits business for the first time. Because did you take a Did you take a wrong turn in India? Ended up in Vermont? How did that... <laughs> is that just yeah. a natural progression? You're like India and then, uh, you know. Yeah, Vermont, obviously. You go from like the most crowded place on the planet to the least crowded place on the planet. No, a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine had a farm up here, convinces me to buy a farm that it's a good idea to settle down, you know, drop an anchor. In this case, a 500 acre anchor. I buy the farm and then the economy tanks in, o- in 08, right? So now I'm going broke with this millstone around my neck of a farm. And I think, well, what do I know? I, 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 what can I grow on this thing? Well, I can grow grain. Well, what can I do with grain? I knew I wasn't going to be a dairy farmer. So I said, you can make alcohol with grain, right? I can make a beer. I can make a vodka. I can make a whatever. And then I, would, I, I dreamed of making a whiskey. Uh, but I didn't think I, I knew that if I wanted to be a good whiskey, it should have some age in it. Um, and in that process of looking at the whiskey business, when it really wasn't popular, now everybody and their grandmother wants to be in the whiskey business. Then it wasn't so popular. The uh, this is '09. I make I met Dave, and I had this magic name Whistle Pig that came to me from hiking in the in the Rockies back a couple of years before in 2003. And the man pops out of a bush and said, good to be here with Sir Pig with this very thick French accent. Oddest piece of social interaction, Dan, that I've ever had in my life. So a guy just started saying the word whistle pig to you? Was there any reason behind it? Literally, I mean, you know, I say pops out of a bush, but he was coming down a single track on a mountain bike, stops right in front of me, gets up in my face, two inches from my face, right? Now, we're both from Philly, right? A guy stops in the middle of nowhere, gets two inches from your face and starts in a, yeah, your arm, your fist go. Getting ready to fight, yeah. Exactly. You're getting ready to fight. You know, I think he's he's working with me, you know. But anyway, I'm, I'm preparing to fight. Anyway, it appears he's just crazy. But he's saying, you know, single track. Mountain biking, middle of the Rockies, middle of nowhere. He stops and just starts talking poppycock. And uh, then he just took off. And that's where I got the name. But that name lodged in your brain. Whistle. The word whistle. Do you consider it one word or two? I know on the bottle, it's it's one one word. word. Yeah. One word. Whistle pig. I know. I knew it very clearly at that moment. I was like, I had this is God talking and he wants me to do something with his name. The, the, it was clear in my head, you know, that this was something was going to happen with this name because it was just the oddest damn thing you could have. And what are the chances that you run into a French guy who stops you and starts talking about anything in the middle of nowhere? Then he's a French guy who's two inches from your face and he's talking about a name in English that you've never heard of. I mean, the number of, and it was a sticky name and a very sticky name. So I had this magic name. I called the farm Whistle Pig. 
now I needed I needed old juice, right? And that's and I wanted to build a distillery. So that's when I got into contact with Dave. Dave had just left Maker's Mark. Again, it's in the middle of a recession. He was looking for his next, you know, act. He was a fan of The Apprentice. The so he thought it was, you know, and he liked me apparently as a character. So, you know, it all came together and uh and we partnered up on my birthday in 2009. I had just turned 34 years old and he had a lock on some old rye whiskey. And we were fortunate enough when one of the big factors in Whistle Pig's success, Dan, and I'll shut up and let you ask me another question, was the fact that we had really almost all the old rye whiskey in the world. And now, basically, the idea is, and what we're doing is a sort of, done that on a new scale with Armagnac, but now instead of 10 years old, this stuff is 100, 150 years old. The youngest juice we're putting in the bottle is 50 years old. It's called Bacta, and that's where I am now. For those of you out there that are not familiar with Armagnac, Armagnac, like Cognac, is French brandy made from white wine grapes. These are grapes that you would never drink on it. It's almost undrinkable. The, these, these grapes as the wine. Okay. Uh, but now in cognac and you correct me if I'm wrong here, Raj in cognac, the uni blanc grape is pretty much what you're going to make cognac with. And by the way, the names refer to the regions. Cognac is a region in, in Gascony and so is Armagnac. So that's where the names come from. Uh, Armagnac though uses three additional grape varietals in addition to the uni blanc grape, uh, uh, Columbard is one of them. What are the other? Columbard, Baco. And uh, Foley Blanche, right? Yeah. Uh, Blanche, and, and they use a lot of, they use one called Baco. Baco. Yeah. And now they, th- there's a difference as well in distillation. Yes? Correct. Correct. So as you pointed out, the Armagnac is like the rustic cousin of, uh, of Cognac. Cognac is a different region and is double distilled. Uh, that is, it goes through a column and then it's finished in a pot, um, whereas Armagnac is just single distilled. Generally, single distilled in the field. Uh, so there are mobile, like, you know, literally wagons uh, and tractors pull the stills, which are frequently wood-fired. And so it is a region that, uh, you know, is out of time. Uh, and that's what really blew me away. The the I mean this is this is this is the way they were making spirits you know 150 years ago in America. Well, and one of the just so people know when you're distilling a spirit, you're kind of stripping away. They call them congeners. You can people call them impurities. There was an idea that certainly took hold when vodka was king, which was you know the the latter part of the 20th century. Raj referred to whiskey. Not a lot of people were into whiskey. Vodka just blew away you know, every other spirit. I mean, you know, there was, so brown spirits were not doing so well at the end of the 20th century. So this idea took hold that, you know, you could distill, you remember that it would be a big marketing thing for vodka is this thing was distilled 17 times. It's practically air. Okay. So now one of the things that now we've come back around again is maybe you don't distill it so much. Maybe you distill it once and you leave some of those quote unquote impurities in there because those are the things that add complexity and give it flavor. And you could argue that Armagnac has a little bit more complexity and flavor, the most Armagnacs than Cognac. 
Yeah, and, and, and not just a little. And I'll tell you what, this is what the, the cogeners, well, we'll put it this way, to put it, it's the rough, the rougher a spirit is, as long as it's not bad, right? That the more, the more character it has as it ages. So while Armagnac is less refined in its youth, and there was, I, I always think of a racehorse, Dan. The, the, you get a crazy bronken buck, you know, uh, uh, too much to handle uh, in its youth. It's that same racehorse that if you can focus and get on the track, turns out, by, turns out to be the champion. And it's the same thing with distillation. Armagnacs, or <clears throat> same thing with aging, rather. You don't want, my core point is, Armagnac is the best deeply aged spirit in the world, by far bar none. The, the, so a 50-year Armagnac is, 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 is perfect, 60, 70 years even almost. Why is that, Rush? Well, <clears throat> a couple of different reasons. One, the spirit has got the necessary character when it's young to be distilled or to be aged for a long time. Two, it generally goes into a larger barrel instead of a 200-liter, uh, 50-gallon barrel goes into a 400, 100-liter barrel the and these are generally French oak that are already old. The and so it slows down the entire aging process. The, the there was an article that I was recently reading. Karen Newman, I believe, uh, wrote was was saying specifically that there are some spirits that you want old and some spirits that you don't want old. And nothing is better old than Armagnac. And nothing in the world of Armagnac, in this case. We finish the Armagnac in a whiskey cast, which creates a beautiful bridge for the whiskey drinker. Our youngest spirit on Bacta 50, Dan, is 50 years old. The oldest stuff is 152 years old. And I like to, you know, just go back to a quote that I wrote, which I think uh, uh, sums it up uh, well. The age statement in this bottle could be given not in terms of years, but of generations. The oldest grapes were harvested in 1867 and were crushed in the wooden vats of the nimble feet by the nimble feet of French children whose grandchildren are themselves now dead and gone. The, the, it, this, is, this is an ability to taste in what really took me away into Armagnac when I saw it, is you had a region that was out of time where you had spirits this old that had survived. You know, it was unbelievable to me. I've talked about this numerous times on this show. I believe... You can feel it when you're drinking spirits and even wine. You know, you can feel the soul of those people. You know, it's yeah. still there. You know, yeah. the people themselves are gone, but everybody from you know the people that tilled the land to the people that carry the. Move the barrels to the the master distiller to the blender to the person who drove it, put it in a cart and took it to the to the market. You can feel their soul in something that old when you're drinking it. I I I totally you know I've never heard it exactly said that way, but you were entirely spot on. You know I wrote them. They say we cannot buy time. Bakta here is an exception. Time in a bottle. And all the wisdom that comes with it. I think that you do feel, you know, and taste, and it's sort of a, I don't want to say, it's, it's sort of a mystical experience when you're tasting something that goes back that far because it's not just, yeah, it's like, it's, it, it is as you describe, you're tasting and 
being part of ghosts almost of ages past. And the good news is it tastes great. Well, I love a good story too. And I've, and I, I think when you purchase something, there's more to it than simply what's in the bottle and, and, and what it tastes like and a, you know, an analytical sort of summation of, of what you're drinking. If you've got something like Bacta 50 has such a great story because you can talk about it. You can, you can sit, you can sit down and you can say, look at the year, 1868 and 97, 1939. What was going on in 1930? Oh, World War II was raging. And then 1946 is one of the other years in the blend. Well, now it had just ended. And then 63, 65, the Beatles just got here, 1970. So there's so much to talk about that this, what is in the bottle has gone through kind of the whole of modern human history is in that bottle. I, 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 uh, I, I, to look, that's what enchants me. You know, I, I wrote, uh, the next line, let's imagine the world. This is the oldest stuff. The planet was dominated by European Kings and emperors whose forefathers had climbed the greasy pole of power. The Napoleon III was emperor of France. Queen Victoria was in the middle of her reign. Uh, the Civil War had just ended in America. And the youngest, uh, that's the oldest, and the youngest stuff is from 1970. Richard Nixon's president, and by the way, at the moment, highly popular. The, the, at that moment in 1970, we had just gone to the moon. It was before Are you saying the- at some point after that he was not popular? What happened? Did I miss yeah. something? I'm not a well, how did you get, how did you? How'd you get these? How'd you get your hands on these spirits? Well, um, the the and it's in this booklet that goes with every bottle. And um, for your listeners, it's uh, three hundred dollars a bottle online now. Pretty much only available, exclusively available online. That'll be five hundred dollars by this Christmas. So um, I do uh, humbly recommend that if you want to get it, uh, you buy it for 300 instead of 500 later on. Um, but I got my hands on it as this booklet, which is in the, the case that the, that the bottle comes in. Uh, my, it was a very, it was a chance thing. I had been, I got exposed to Armagnac, Dan, when we did a whistle pig finish, a boss hog finish called the Black Prince, which was finished in Armagnac. And the, the, I first really heard and started tasting of Armagnac at this time. So it was in the back of my head. Anyway, we're in France. My wife, you know, is a, a pregnant with the fourth baby, is in not such a great, you know, mood. Uh, and, you know, tells me to take a hike for a little bit. So I hop in the car and I drive to the Armagnac region. And I was really lucky that the guy with the oldest Armagnac supplies, the um, which went back, as we mentioned, to 1868, but a lot from 1878, uh, 1893, 1900. I mean, through the teens, basically, it was a, a collector family that had been collecting it for several generations. He wanted to sell. He had developed some health issues. The and, you know, even with him wanting to sell, by the way, the French move a lot slower and that they can be. I love the French, but they're particular in certain ways. And my negotiations were not helped by my very like brass American, brash American ways, at least he thought so. Like I thought it was fun. I was in France. I was listening, watching like Beauty and the Beast. You remember saying this song was coming, you know, be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test, die a napkin. 
So I'm blasting that 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 song that song is Escalade that was over there. So first of all, I'm blasting this song, pulling into this chateau. I'm driving this gigantic American, you know, car, and he didn't like it. Right. So so it took me a little longer to close that deal, but it was sheer luck that I happened to frankly get kicked out of the house, that I happened to know Armagnac, and that this guy happened to be wanting to sell because literally what what it didn't fall into my lap, it took a lot of work. But what we managed to acquire was the gems of the entire history of the Armagnac region. And I'm biased, but I'll ask you, and you'll be honest with your with your listeners. Are you aware, have you heard of any other spirits anywhere in the world that have age statements like this that go back this far other than an Armagnac? No. not. I mean, closest would be Cognac. I, I've been to the Cognac region a couple times, and they've got some old stuff there, but no, I have never encountered anything personally as old as what's in Pacta 50. And, and I think that that's it, right? I mean, if you go in, look, you don't want to, you know it well enough. Um, but for the benefit of, you know, your listeners generally, uh, you don't want a bourbon that's much over, you know, I, I'll pick it, whether it's 15 years. They get over, they get over extracted. I, I when you get up to the, in the twenties, there's, yeah, there's a lot much. of that, a lot of wood on there. And I feel like it, it overpowers that's correct. the spirit it itself. It begins to taste worse, bottom line. Exactly. The, 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 and scotch can go a lot longer. You know, you can get a great scotch that goes into the thirties and the forties and 50 year old, you can get a great scotch because it sits in Scotland where the temperature doesn't really change and it goes into an old barrel, right? The, the, but at the end of the day, you made the point. In fact, I owe you one because that point that you made that you can taste the spirits almost in this spirit of ages past Normally, that comes at the expense at a certain point of it tasting like shit. In this case, it actually holds up at these ages. So if you drink my 1868 spirit, it got pulled out of the bottle, out of the barrel when it was probably 70 or 80 years old, but it's still from 1868. It tastes phenomenal. The, and, and so it's, it's, it is to me almost a mystical experience to be able to taste the world of 1868, 1893, 1934, 1939, you know, French mothers are watching and parents are watching their little boys march off to the front to fight Adolf Hitler, you know, in 1955, Churchill's, you know, in his last year, I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 you have, to, if you're into that and you believe in like tasting things, there's, this is a, this is nothing like it. And finally, there's the piece of something that's deeply inherent in human nature. What will always be the most, Let's say it tastes the same. Hmm? And we'll just say it tastes the same. It's all equally good. The a, Something that's 20 years old, something that's 50 years old, something that's 100 years old. Something waited 20 years to touch your lips, something waited 50 years to touch your lips, which one, something waited 100 years. I tell you, they all taste the same. Which one do you want to taste? The older one. Exactly. And that's and, 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 here's a, and here's an opportunity to, to do that at a level that nobody that I'm aware of in the entire history of the spirits business is done. And there's one thing that I take very, very seriously, a couple of things that I take very seriously. But the one thing is it relates to being a purveyor of spirits. I want to offer my consumers, my buyers, the best value in the world of spirits. I can be in the whiskey business. I built a bus- whiskey business before. I can be in tequila. I can be in anything that I want to be in. But here I seriously believe that in terms of value for what you're getting 
there's nothing like Bakta 50 and there's nothing like Armagnac in particular, Bakta 50 and an Armagnac in general. It's where you'll find the greatest value. Well, let me let me let me ask you something here. When you talk about what you're getting, yeah. how do you how did you go about authenticating those spirits? I, I'm you know, all yeah. due respect to the to the gentle farmer, the French guy you had over there. But how do you how do you go about knowing for sure about the provenance of those what you're buying? Because yeah. I'm sure I'm sure the last thing you want to do is sink a bunch of money in and then find out. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. how did you? Yeah, how does that work? The, the one of the I normally complain about like regulation and French rules and all that sort of stuff because it is a pain in the ass. But the good news of it is, is that they set up these um, uh, AOCs, they call them like uh, basically cognac is one in spirits, Calvados, uh, Armagnac. There are a couple of others. And then they have them in wine, of course, champagne, this, these different regions. But they've had these bodies which basically keep track of inventories for a long, long time. And so they know how much 1868 exists. And we have it all, for example. So if somebody else all of a sudden shows up with it, you can go back to the records and be like, well, where did you get it? Because it's... So you had to go through the books, basically. Somebody's got to go through and make sure that everything that you you bought that you're eventually putting in your book is the real deal. Exactly. So it's all, it all, you, you, everything that you buy, you authenticate through, in this case, what's called the BNIA, which is the, the Armagnac Bureau. And you look at their inventories and it matches up and they show, yeah, this is what the guy has been showing in inventory for, you know, their records go back a hundred and over a hundred years. So you, you, when you buy the spirit from him, do you, do you have to move it somewhere or or did you buy the whole operation? Yeah, I bought the whole thing, lock, stock and barrel, but we moved over uh, then a lot of it to America. So, uh, in Vermont, um, we're sitting on probably three quarters, two thirds, uh, of, uh, of the Armagnac that was purchased. So some is there, some is over here. And then, you know, like I did at Whistlepig were, I believe strongly that a, I buy old spirits. I try to buy all the best old spirits I possibly can and build a market for it. But I also think you should be in the production of it. I think people should be in the production of it from the ground. Uh, So we're planting different grapes uh, here in Vermont, uh, cold hardy varietals, uh, which, as you point out, may not be the wines you want to drink, but the high acidity of them make them perfect for, uh, for brandy bringing over a wood fired still that will produce Bakta here uh, in Vermont. And it backs into, you know, bringing it to, uh, to America because we need people investing in this country right now. Another quote that I jumped out at me, you said, I love whiskey. I'll never repudiate it. It should be clear that the grape and fruit in general is a vastly more complex source for spirits than grain. And if you want craft, our Maniac brandy is the gold standard. So why is why do you believe fruit is a better star a better source starch than than grain? Well, let's 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 just use the intuitive approach first. I've got a bundle of ripe grapes uh and I've got a handful of ripe grain. And I say chow down, which one do you want? You take the grapes. Yeah. Or the peaches, you know, pick, pick your fruit in general. Fruit is a much more elegant 
exquisite uh, uh, thing to eat, bottom line. Grain is like, you know, I, I, I don't want to call it bottom of the barrel, but it's the stuff that, you know, it's a hell of a lot less expensive. The, you have to, it, let me give you an example. The, the, so, so just the intuitive approach you got, right? I mean, you bundle of grapes versus, you know, a handful of, handful of grain. People are generally going to like, you know, give me, give me the fresh fruit. Um, it's also inevitably vastly more expensive to make, right? Because it is. So you generally do get what you pay for. To make a gallon of Armagnac costs, okay, well, I, I know the number. So let's say it costs six, seven times more, eight times more than it is to make whiskey. Because to plant a to plant an acre of grapes, it costs you $15,000, $20,000, the the end you don't get your first fruit until three years later and you got lots of labor to prune that vine in between with with uh with grain it's you know it's a couple hundred acres to plant and then you harvest six months later so it's not even in the same ballpark so that's a very very important point that i think that the whiskey drinker and i'll go on the record the whiskey drinker is being bent over a barrel uh, in America, in many cases, they're paying for, you know, thin age statements, they're paying high prices, they're paying for, you know, fake craft. And I'll put it this way, craft, quote unquote, like if Uncle Fester's making it in the backyard, and he's using a shitty technique, and it's so organic, because he like crapped on the on the on the grass that made the thing, and it's like all super hand done, you know, uh, it doesn't necessarily make it good. What you want is a good product at the end of the day. But if you can combine a great product like Armagnac with a true standard in, in craft, which are hundreds of small-scale producers making product in their fields from wood-fired stills, my God, that's so romantic. It's- are you suggesting that the folks at MGP are not uh, doing the, the craft over there? Uh, that's definitely, it's definitely not craft, but it's good. No, no. MGP, so everybody knows, is a, in Indiana, uh, giant. They make a lot of spirit. A lot of the whiskeys that you're drinking originated there. And, I'm, and, and as Raj said, it's a, there's a lot of good stuff that people make, and especially in the beginning, because you don't have the time. When you started making Whistle Pig, you didn't have you, – you didn't put up a distillery and wait 15 years so that you aged it. So you got to do that first. But, yeah, it's – but we're talking about a, a larger scale operation, certainly. Yeah, th- this is so I and I think, you know, that's the point in the 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 brandy uh, and, I'll, I'll, and I'll tell you why. And I'll just I'll go unabashedly, you know, why I think Bakta is the salvation uh, to the nosebleed prices that a lot of whiskey drinkers bring. And look, and I had something to create. I mean, I, I, I created high whiskey prices in no small part through Whistlebank. Right. So the the the. The bridge is when you take this Armagnac brandy and you finished it, which was like a gift from the gods for me, just like, you know, coming up with the whistle pig name, the was this Frenchman farmer finished his Armagnac in an Isla cask in a small, it was a Bunahaben cask. That's my dog's name, by the way. Buna is that right? Yeah. My dog's name after a scotch. Yes. Buna. Yeah. Yeah. You look good. I mean, it doesn't look like you drink too much scotch. Mm, I'm all right. I can do it. Yeah. That's my, that is my dog's name, Buna Hoppin. I sipped I it. I sipped it. I got back from a trip. I'd just gotten her. She was a puppy. Her name was Chloe. 
my girlfriend at the time and I were like, well, we're not keeping Chloe, that dog's name. And I, we couldn't come up with a name. And I, I just got back from a trip to Scotland. I was drinking Bunahabin 25 year old, which is one Ooh. of my favorite whiskeys in the world. And I was sipping it and I, and I was joking. And I said, Oh, Buna, Buna, Buna. I love you, Buna. And my girlfriend said, what about Buna for the dog? And the puppy was on the couch right next to me, head down on the couch. And I just said, Buna. And she lifted her head up and looked at me. I said, all right, there we go. That's your name. Yeah. That's how yeah. Yeah. So had I been drinking Bakta 50, my next dog could be named Bakta if I'm drinking it. You never know. <laughs> you won't, you won't get confused, you know, at the, at the, the dog park with anybody else's dog. That's for sure. Yeah. And then my cat, there's my cat cocaine and then, no, I'm just joking. We don't do drugs here on this show. Uh, no. <laughs> let me, I want to, um, I do want to ask you about, so I want to talk about the, the actual, the flavor of the, oh wait, finish that thought. I'm sorry. You were, you were talking about the Buna Hobbin. You, you go ahead. No, no. So basically, you know, the, the, we're getting, getting to the flavor is that if you take the attributes of Armagnac and you combine it with the attributes of whiskey, in this case, Isla whiskey, you get the best out of both. You know, you get the sweetness uh, that is inherent in a fruit-based uh, uh, spirit and the smoke uh, and a little bit of the spice that I love in Isla and Isla scotches. And, and so everybody knows Isla is an island off the west coast of Scotland. It is home to the peatiest scotches. In the, you've got Laphroaig and, and Ardbeg and Buna Hobbins there and famous grouse and uh, uh, several others. It, basically, the, the island itself is just one giant uh, peat bog, and they yeah. bur- and they the, the peat is a source that they burn the peat to smoke the barley, and that's where you get that that really earthy, smoky flavor that comes in. So that's what Raj is talking about yep. here, and it does come through. I mean, I my notes on the on the on the on the Bakta fifty, the smoke was certainly there. And then I think there was also a real, like a, a, almost a sweet toffee element to it that I really liked. And also some pear stone fruit going on as well. Like maybe some peaches, apricot, you know, a lot going on in there. And you know, that word complex gets thrown around a lot, but how could it not be (laughs) given the makeup, given the, 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 the spirits that go into it, there's just so much going on. It's, it's challenging to drink it and not in a bad way. Challenging in a way where it's almost like a game trying to identify the various elements that are going on in there. And that's not something you can say about a lot of spirits. You know, a lot of them, well, I love them. They're great. They're straightforward. But something like Bakta 50 is a sort of a puzzle you got to put together or a riddle. You're trying to go, what is happening right now? What is happening in my mouth as I'm drinking this, because there's so much going on. I think it's, it's lovely. You know what, Dan, you should be, you you should be paying, I should be paying you, you know, for, 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 uh, for this podcast. Because because you're giving me some good ideas. You know, you got the point of the tasting of the, the ages of, you know, the different time, the spirit, the ghosts uh, that are in there. And I think that that's exactly right. When you taste for the people that are listening, when you taste Bach to 50 for the first time, it's, it won't fit into any category. It's going to taste like something totally different. And I think you just have to, you know, transport yourself uh, and imagine. And this is what I do. Like I go back, I read the booklet. I imagine uh, all the different spirits that are in there. I imagine the, the, 
the the, the part of the world uh, that it's from. Uh, there's 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 a deeply uh, rich uh, spirit there. There's a lot of character, uh, and there's a, and it's very and it's very smooth for what it is in its high proof. Proof. And in a nutshell, what I look for in my spirit is what I look for in a best friend. I like a lot of character, and I like it to be smooth. And normally, you get somebody who's a big character, they're not particularly smooth. You know, you don't want to spend a lot of time with them. And you get somebody who's really smooth, they're pretty boring. They don't have much character. And I think what we nail is a good balance between character and smoothness. And as for all of the particular, like, do you taste the teardrops of angels and stuff like that, that some people talk about? Um, I don't taste them. I don't taste them in my spirit. I don't taste them in other spirits. But I do get that ba- fundamental balance between character and smoothness. Do I get a lot of flavor? Does it taste good? And in this case, it's a near mystical experience if you understand what you're drinking. 1868, 1878, 1893, 1939, 1946, 1955, 62, 63, Kennedy gets assassinated. You know, the, the, it's just, it's like, it, it, that blows me away. But I'm a history lover. You sure. know, I'm a history lover. But if you're going to drink and you're going to spend some money, get something that, you know, is like, uh, that, that they're never going to make more of. In fact, it's so good. I almost feel guilty, and it's so rare drinking it because I feel like, oh my God, that just vanished from the earth, you know, forever. The the so you know, enjoy. I, I recommend drinking it, but it's also a, you can collect. You know, anybody out there, I, people hit me up sometimes. They ask me, I want to get a collection of stuff. Well, this would be a great place to start, especially as Raj said, if you get it for three hundred dollars. Because I'm going to tell you, you're going to go to auction, or you're going to go to some of these. You're going to be paying a lot more for some whiskeys and things like that and maybe not getting near the quality that you're getting with something like Box 50. So if you got 300 bucks and you're looking, you want to start collecting, maybe buy one bottle to collect and one bottle to drink over the holidays and impress impress whoever it is you're going to let inside your little bubble. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, where what's the name of the town where your chateau is in uh, the little village? It's it's <laughs> Combon, as they say in French, but it's Condom. Condom France, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Condom France. The best when place was, to be. You're not going to catch anything in Condom France. You're you're fine there. And this and this one's in the wrapper. <laughs> this one's in the wrapper. I do. I I brought up an, an article. I, I did. Uh, I did an interview with Dave Pickroll talking about go back to whiskey uh, whistle pig real quick. A couple of years ago, um, I was going to say before he died. Of course, it was before he died. We were talking about the Boss Hog, and this was for Rob Report. And so I asked him, I said, after Boss Hog, the Black Prince was named Best in Show in San Francisco, which is the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. I'm one of the judges up there. Eh, It'll never be me. This is what you told Rob Report. You said, Scotland doesn't see us coming. I see the sun setting on their single malt empire and a very rapid rise for the Americans, particularly in rye with Whistlepig leading the charge. And I asked Dave, is he right? Should the folks in space, I'd be worried. And this is, I could just hear Dave saying it. He goes, Raj is definitely one for the dramatic quote. <laughs> but uh, it was great. I just uh, love that he said that. I remember he, that. I remember that. Raj is one for the dramatic quote. But I got to say, this what you're saying about Bach to 50 is not hyperbole. I mean, this is a, it's really a, a, a super spirit. And uh, I couldn't recommend it more highly, uh, particularly because it's it's out of the ordinary as well. 
you know what did you what did you think of the booklet then that came there that came with it i mean i i, I thought I spent- it was impressive i thought it was a great i mean the whole package is great and i think when when i got the whole thing i it also I know this was a separate thing, but you guys sent me some, how you wooed me really was you sent me this pancake. You sent me uh, like some pancakes or something from Vermont. Do you know this? Like there was something up there like that was came or it was like a recommendation for pancakes. What, yeah. What's the pancake place you got near you up there? Skinny pancake. Pan- I don't even, somebody, maybe somebody just told me about these pancakes that I had to try and they were from Vermont. It was near your farm. Uh, yeah, but anyway, I got it. But I thought the booklet, I thought the whole package was great. I thought it was, it's different. And it's different and it's excellent. And that's, you know, when you get a chance to get something that's unusual and that is so good and that is going to only increase in value, I say you jump on it. Yeah, and I'll I'll just add it there. as like, look, I mean, one thing that I that I take very seriously is that you know, I like when people, I'm a businessman. I mean, the point of business is to make money, but you develop a good reputation when people make money who do business with you too. That's really what makes you have a great reputation as, as a business person. And if I go back and you look what a boss hog black prince costs now, I mean, that was probably a $300 bottle, $350 bottle. Uh, that's a couple thousand dollar bottle now. The if you look at the earlier releases um, of the Boss Hogs, they're all a couple thousand dollars a bottle uh, now, and those were it started out at probably I think one fifty two hundred was the first Boss Hog, and now you can't even get it anyway. The this is one of those things that um, I think it's uh, you know our mutual friend Brad Jaffe uh, said one to stock and one to rock. Uh, that's the way to do it on this product. And I think that there's, there's a great appreciation potential here, but you should definitely, you know, drink it because it, 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 uh, you know, don't like get transfixed it with like Gollum and that ring, my precious, but, you know, drink one and, and hold on to one because the one you hold on to will definitely more than pay for the one, uh, that you drank. Well, as I mentioned on the previous episode, we just launched our new website for the podcast, whatwe'redrinking.com. So be sure to go there and I'll have, I'll have information about Bakta 50, about Raj, where you can you can go online, find some stuff there as well. Raj, where can people find you on the uh, social medias? Uh, on the interwebs. The, on the inter- the-, the series of tubes that are connected is... Yeah, Late Ted back- Stevens said. Uh, yeah. yeah, at baktabrandy.com. I think it's uh, on, on Instagram. You can get some pictures of the bottle. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that. Raj, always great talking to you. Raj Bakta, Bakta 50. Folks, check it out. Perfect time, holiday. Got somebody you love. You want to give them a great gift, a spirits lover in your life. Well, this is about, uh, this is perfect. Perfect. At that price point, it's perfect gift. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here, buddy. Great talking to you. And we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. And now, here's the universe letting us know it really doesn't want us to have a promo from Pitbull. I was wondering if you could do me one quick favor say, hey, this is Pitbull, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Hello, Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but it's... Oh. It's official. What are we drinking By the way, you dropped, out, you dropped out for a second there. So if you, your phone went out. Let's try one more time. That little chico pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. Play with it, darling. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think the universe does not want you to promote my show. Every time you do it, it keeps dropping out. No. But don't, don't worry about it, man. One more time. One more time. I'll try one more time. Right? Here we go. I'm going to try one more time. That little chico pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and it's official. You are listening to What Are We Drinking with Dan Dunn. You game, play with it. Yo! <laughs> That's good, man. <laughs> the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, also known as Discus, is the leading voice and advocate for uh, producers and marketers of distilled spirits in the U.S. It's a lobbying group. And I just got some news from them that I want to share with you and leave you with this today. And it's not necessarily great news, but hey, what is great now? It's COVID. Five key issues facing the distilled spirits industry. Number one bit of news they said was that COVID-19 crushes craft distillers. Discus and the American Distilling Institute, ADI, they did a study recently that revealed that 41% of craft distillers' sales evaporated. It's like $700 million in sales, and 31% of their employees have been furloughed. This is during the pandemic. A significant portion of these losses was attributed to the shutdown of on-site sales from tasting rooms and other on-premise sales. So it leads me to a suggestion here. If you do have a spot nearby that is serving drinks to go, I really encourage you to go out and, and, and patronize those places and try to keep them in business because we are going to get through COVID. And I, and I know a lot of you, like me, want our favorite places to be around when it's over. So get out there and do that. News number two from Discus is that craft distillers face 400% tax increase if craft beverage bill does not pass Congress by year's end. So there's a, uh, the, the bill is called the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. It's H.R. 1175, and it makes permanent a federal excise tax reduction that was enacted in 2017. Craft distillers have used the tax savings to make significant investments in their businesses, hire new workers, and support their communities. Without congressional approval, craft distillers will be hit with a 400% tax hike from the 270 per proof gallon to 1350 per proof gallon at the start of 2021, which will further devastate a decimated industry. So if you care about that, look up your congressperson, send him an email, give him a call, tell him you want the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act passed. Pass that shit. Come on. I love how we're tackling all these, don't you? We're just knocking them out. Number three, tariffs continue to wreak havoc on distillers on both sides of the pond. According to a discus analysis, American whiskey exports to the EU, which includes the United Kingdom until it departs the EU Customs Union, have tumbled by 41%, costing producers over $300 million since the EU's 25% retaliatory tariff went into effect in June 2018. Additionally, since October 18, 2019, the U.S. has imposed a 25% tariff on imports of single malt Scotch whiskey, single malt Irish whiskey, from Northern Ireland, liqueurs and cordials from Germany, Ireland, Italy, Spain, and United Kingdom. So shit's getting screwed up. Now, the good news is that was a Donald Trump thing, and I have a, a sneaky suspicion that the Biden administration will overturn those tariffs. I'm just saying, I think that's going to happen. All right. So let's not get too wrapped up on that one. Number four, five key issues facing the distilled spirits. Number four, controversial proposal to change U.S. government definition of moderate drink from moderate drinking for men. What, 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 what is this? Hold on a second. 
A new government proposal would upend the 30-year dietary guidelines definition of moderate drinking for men, reducing it from up to two drinks per day to no more than one drink per day. (laughs) Sorry. Moderate drinking, one drink per day. I find that funny. I just do. Because I host a show called What We're Drinking. Discus is weighed in to oppose the proposal, which is based on a flawed report and not supported by scientists. Of course it's not supported. What, the one drink, more than one drink? is beyond moderate drinking? What This is crazy talk. Remarkably, of the 60 studies approved for the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee's review, only one study even compared one versus two drinks per day. A number of alcohol researchers, medical professionals, and nutritious experts oppose the change, as does Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. We oppose it. So do you, my listeners. At least two drinks we can have and still be called moderate drinkers. My God. Finally, some good news. Thanks, Discus. I'm going to leave us with good news. Number five, the cocktails to go trend taking off. Iowa became the first state in Ohio, the second to make their temporary cocktail to go measures permanently legal. Discus is advocating for permanent cocktail to go measures to provide a much needed source of stability and revenue for local bars, restaurants, and distilleries as they begin to recover from COVID-19. I don't know any. Do you know any distilleries that caught COVID-19? I don't either, but eh, let me know if you do. Currently, more than 30 states plus D.C. are allowing restaurants and or bars to sell cocktails to go, bottled spirits to go, or both. Which, come on, New Orleans has taught us. It works. It's a good policy. So I say that we keep that. Let's advocate. I don't know how we advocate for it. Just call your congressman, shout out the window, send me a note at the imbiber or at WWD underscore podcasts. So now that I've delivered the news, I've delivered an interview with Raj Bakta. I've told you about the different types of bars. What more do you want from me, people? What do you want? Do you want me to take my shirt off here? I'll do it. There. You want me to have a drink? Yeah, I'll do that too. Do you want me to say thank you for joining me on this episode? Of course. Thank you. I love you. And thank you to Raj Peter Bakta for coming on, learning us about some Armagnac and some rye whiskey. I invite you to follow me on the social media. I invite you to do something nice for somebody today, tomorrow, the next day. I invite you to be a good person because that's what we need in this world. We just need a bunch of good people. And then the bad people will leave us alone. Speaking of leaving you alone, here I go. (laughs) 